Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. I invite you to scroll through my extensive catalog of more than 120 awesome AA interviews on any podcast app or at the website aarecoveryinterviews.com. Every episode is unique, inspiring, engaging, and meaningful. Each story is a powerful testimony of the recovery available to all in AA. So sit back and enjoy this encore episode of my July 2021 interview with Jane P., whose sobriety date is June 1995. On today's podcast, I want to introduce a recent friend of mine from across the pond in England, Jane P. I first met Jane in early 2020 when I started attending a Zoom meeting originating in London. Her story captivated me, and it's one I want to share in its entirety with my AA brothers and sisters. Given up for adoption at 18 months old by a mother who later committed suicide, Jane was raised by an older, loving couple who never quite understood her preteen drinking or streak of independence, which included running away from home at 14. Early attempts to become a good girl in a Christian youth group gave way to a dark side fueled by emerging alcoholism, wild behavior, and self-harm in the form of cutting. As alcohol and blood flowed over the next years, Jane's foray into London's early punk rock scene preceded a marriage that endured 15 tumultuous years, only to end in divorce. Known to many as Mad Jane, the insanity of the intervening years precipitated her rapid descent toward alcoholic ruin. Fate, however, met her at the edge of the abyss, where she was snagged by the remembered words of a friend who had told her about Alcoholics Anonymous many years earlier. In sheer desperation, Jane flew to the U.S. where her friend helped her find AA. She returned to London with renewed hope and a suggested program of recovery. Though she slipped after a year and a half of her initial efforts, Jane redoubled her efforts, found a good sponsor, worked the steps, and ultimately claimed her current sobriety date over 26 years ago. Through the years, Jane's active involvement in AA has included service to her groups and sponsoring other women. Because her sobriety has been concurrent with abstinence from self-harm and cutting, Jane's unique understanding and empathy related to that disease have been extended to others facing that same mental health issue. It's rare service that goes above and beyond, but is so crucial in these days of multiple addictions. There's a sweet gentleness in Jane's recounting of her life story that's both touching and poignant, but also quite impactful. In many ways, her story illuminates how another realm of addiction can encumber the ability and effort to get and stay sober. After you've listened to the next 60 minutes of AA Recovery Interviews, I think you'll appreciate the wisdom and optimism of my friend and AA sister, Jane P. I'm Jane. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Jane. I uh, so appreciate you doing this today. Of course, you're in Great Britain while I am in the state of Texas. In Houston. In Houston, exactly. And you and I had the opportunity to meet on a meeting that we both go to every week during the COVID uh, pandemic. But that was a meeting that you were going to previously and in person when you're there in England. That's right. That's one of my first meetings. My first main meetings. Your first main meeting. So how long have you been sober? 
26 years. 26 years. And your what's your sobriety date? It's the 21st of June, 1995. Wow. Congratulations on that. So you just passed your 26th year. I think I heard you share in the meeting where you had your birthday. And while I've only had the opportunity to get to know you through your shares, which basically means about three minutes at a time, I knew from hearing what you said in meetings that you were one of those people I definitely wanted to have on the show. <clears throat> How did a nice young lady like you ever show up in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous? What was going on in your life that made you say, I got to go to AA? Uh, basically, I got and just so exhausted and so tired out and absolutely broken, mm -hmm. finished, done in. Mm -hmm. And I'd been 12-stepped a couple of years before, and I'd actually been taken to meetings, and I'd got sober a few years before, mm -hmm. but I knew nothing of AA, how it worked. And I attended one meeting a week, which had no chairs, hmm. had no newcomers in a sense. It was a, a very small, they called it a gold card meeting. But I was too shy to go to any others. Hmm. I was too terrified. Mm -hmm. And I'd, I was taken to this. And I went for about six months, once a week. I heard a wonderful thing in my first meeting in that room. Mm -hmm. And that was... This is not your fault. This is a disease. Hmm. And it seemed to lift everything. Whoa. Hmm. But the thing was that after six months, I got more depressed than anything. Nobody really talked to me after the meeting. So your first six months were not exactly what you thought they would be, huh? Well, I didn't know what to think. What was missing for you? Um, contact. Contact. You know, somebody to show me the ropes. Hmm. Uh, and I was very caught up in myself, so I wouldn't reach out. Mm. And then I drank a year after I stopped going to that meeting, mm. just one tiny quarter glass of wine. But what it set up in me was so violent. Now, also, there'd been other, like, sort of things leading me to the rooms. Mm -hmm. One was that I was married at this time, mm -hmm. and my ex-husband and I were very young when we married. Mm -hmm. um, he was. He mm -hmm. was 19. Wow. I was 23, and really active alcoholic. He wasn't. Now, he'd grown up a wonderful, wonderful man, uh -huh. and um, he was best friends and buddies with... Um, my ex-husband's Dan W. And so Woody grew up with Mark. He was younger, two years, three years younger. Now, Mark was totally mad. We did so much together, you know, my husband included, but also without my husband. Um, he was sort of uh, mad. He could do everything, tell you he could do it, and he did it, and he would tell people what to do. Uh -huh. He's one of these huge characters. And five years before, um, he had gone out to stay with his father and make uh -huh. his own life in Hollywood because his uh -huh. father was a successful uh -huh. Actor. He'd been at the uh, Royal Shakespeare Company. Sure. And so Mark went out to join him and to pursue a career as an actor. Now, the Mark I had known was wild, drunken, cocaine, everything. And he came back to visit us. And this was a year before I got really sober mm -hmm. the first time. But he came back sober and he came to dinner with us. And, you know, I'd bought wine. He said, no, no, I'm fine. 
I don't drink. And he spoke about Alcoholics Anonymous Mm -hmm. for like, I would say, 20 minutes, boof. A little bit about this, a little bit about that. Then we spoke about Michael Chekhov for the next two hours. We didn't, you know, it was a light introduction. Now, after my year and a half of sobriety, my ex-husband, who I have to tell you, had been totally devoted to me through all of my madness and my alcoholic behavior Uh and Everything and there was a lot of madness and violence and infidelity. Now this this is the husband that you married when he was nineteen and you were twenty three. Yeah, I met Mark through my ex husband. He is part of his family unit. Okay, so so for how many years were you and your ex uh, married? Fifteen years. Yes, so I'd known Mark for about fifteen years. My ex husband had been devoted to me. He was obsessed with me, I see. if you can understand oh, yeah. that. There was obsession there. Yeah. And also, my madness nullified his own cravings. He had been an addict, mm-hmm. uh, cocaine. He'd stopped that. He'd stopped smoking. Hmm. He didn't drink because his mo- his father had drank, uh-huh. and he wouldn't go there. Yeah. And that's why he, I think he fell in love with me, because the first time we met, it was backstage, we are both performing, uh-huh. and I was a little bit tipsy after uh-huh. my show, and he fell in love with that. That's what he fell in love with, uh, a little bit of a tipsy woman, a tipsy lady, something he understood. And this wasn't while he was drinking, right? No, he never drank. He never drank, and, and he was attracted to the tipsy lady. Yeah, because, you know, he knew it. He understood I that. I get it, sure. He needed a distraction from his own demons. I get it, sure. Because he had grown up in a severely alcoholic home. Oh, yeah, yeah. So basic, after a year and a half of my not drinking, uh-huh. my adoptive mother died, uh-huh. and, and suddenly he wasn't there. Huh. If you know what I yeah. mean, he was absent. And he started being really sad and unhappy Uh and I couldn't figure it out and so I was in a play at the time Uh and I drove home that night and it was late you know we'd have to sort of break down the set every night Uh and and I arrived home and there was just a note I've gone to John in Bristol because we live in London Uh John was like one of his best childhood friends he'd driven off in the night and there's me still working on this play my mother has just died and Uh I'm trying to be sober and he's not been there and I don't know what's going on and he had actually very funnily had started drinking a wee bit when I stopped Hmm. incrementally Hmm. and there was a little glass half a glass of wine in a bottle uh-huh. up in his studio in the attic uh-huh. and I drank it huh. and that was the first in one and a half years and the feeling it set up in me the compulsion but it's three o'clock in the morning by this right. time yeah. it was too late to go out so I didn't drink anymore but that was blessed but that was after one and a half years of sobriety yeah dry drunks of really quite dry dry drunk really I, I wasn't doing meetings I'd stopped going how many years into your marriage did this occur oh this was 14 years 15 years this was 15 okay so this is towards the end of this is towards the end of the marriage yeah I see and so I knew what to do uh-huh. I think it was God saying it I picked up the huh. phone and I called Mark in West Hollywood. And I said, Mark, I, I need to 
get away. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to be sober. I've just picked up a drink and I've been sober like one and a half years. I need to come and visit you. There's something wrong. I need to mm. get away. And he said, yeah, great, three weeks. Uh, my ex-husband paid all the fares. He said, yeah, that's a great idea. Because mm. mm -hmm. I knew I needed a sober person in my life. Now, Mark, as I said, mm -hmm. it was 100% positive uh -huh. energy. I needed... And this was after he had already given you that 20-minute introduction to AA, just a little hook. Yeah, that little seed, yep. You knew who to call, didn't you? Yeah, I knew who to call. I needed to get away, and I needed to go to yeah. where I could get sobriety. Let me ask you something, Jane. You had mentioned that your first six months in AA were not particularly great and, and didn't do much to keep you attracted. Was that the one and a half years that you were sober, or did you do the one and a half years without AA at that point? No, that was... I had the six months with AA and then a year without. So you decided after six months with AA into this year and a half that you were sober. I was too scared to go to other meetings. Yeah. Did people reach out to you, though, during that time? I mean, in the meetings? No. So you know how we go to meetings these days and people are extraordinarily friendly and very good with the newcomers and they make sure that, that people get known and get uh, surrounded after me. That didn't happen to you then, huh? It didn't happen. Yeah. Huh. It was a very self-involved group. Yeah. When I was new in sobriety, Jane, my first year, I was very full of myself. I thought I could do AA on my own. So I would come late and leave early for meetings. I really didn't let people get to know me. I sure as heck didn't reach out. Uh, and a lot of people, when you don't reach out, they don't reach back. What, what frame of mind were you in during that six months? Were you just scared? I was very shy and very scared. Uh-huh. And it was a wrong meeting for me. Yeah. But that wasn't, you know, I needed something else. And going out to America and staying with Mark, first thing we did, we went to meetings. We That's went to great. all of these meetings. And the first mm -hmm. meeting that we went to, this guy was at the door and he reached out his hand and he said, <laughs> Hello, I am. And I'm like, Whoa. And they blew me away. Isn't oh, my great? goodness. The energy, people laughing and shouting, clapping, whistling, and yeah. wonderful, wonderful shares. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Bam. I will say this about Mark. He had yeah. his sponsees. Would call a, they'd call his apartment at 3 o'clock in the morning. We'd go out to the coffee house and, mm -hmm. and we'd, we'd go meet them. And mm -hmm. I would listen, 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 how he talked, everything he said. It was mm. wonderful. Mm. And, mm. and I, I, I really got it. And he, when, when I left after three weeks, he said, Jane, you go to meetings, you do 90 meetings in 90 days, and you get a sponsor. I said, can't you be my, because I can't be your sponsor. <laughs> right. I'm the wrong sex, and I'm the other side of the world. Right. So after three weeks in California where you were hanging with Mark, you were going to all these great groups where people were really friendly and boisterous and, and just uh, very upbeat, made you think that AA was the place to be. So after three weeks, you go back to, back to England, 
happened? I fly into Heathrow and my husband is not there. Now, he always met my planes. Huh. He was he would always be there. He knew you were coming? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He just didn't show. He wasn't there waiting. So I grabbed oh. a cab uh-huh. and got it home. And he was at the door when the cab pulled up. Uh-huh. And he told me, and it was the day before our 15th wedding anniversary. Uh-huh. And he told me, I'm leaving. Hmm. He's leaving. And the whole of my world rocked. It just fell. Mm. He he left two days later. Mm-hmm. You know, we slept in the same bed and he held me as I cried. Mm-hmm. And I hardly stopped crying. He wouldn't tell me why. He mm. just said, I, I'm leaving. And he took a few things and two days later he was gone. Did you see it coming? I knew that something was seriously wrong. I didn't expect that. His love had been, albeit obsessive, it was deeply happy love. Mm. And mm. even mm-hmm. though I was a monster because mm-hmm. of my drinking, mm-hmm. he, he, he stood by me. He was, well, he really did support me and he was incredible. So you have firsthand knowledge of how the disease of alcoholism can tear apart a marriage from the inside out, don't you? Oh, yes. So he put up with you for a long time until he couldn't put up with you anymore, I guess, huh? No, no it wasn't that. No, what was it? <laughs> it's because I got sober, that one and a half years, not drinking. Oh. His own feelings, his own deep demons began to emerge. And as I say, he incrementally began to drink himself. That's interesting. Now, there's this great movie, The Fisher King, and there's a scene in it where Jeff Ridges' lady just sort of confronts him. Uh And she says, I can't go through this. Don't leave me in a world of hurt. Yeah. I can't hang on waiting. Yeah. You have to tell me now. So two weeks later, my ex-husband came to visit and I, I played him that little extract from the movie. I said, uh-huh. I need to know. I need to know what's happening. Mm. They said, there's another woman. Now, mm. she was in a very dysfunctional relationship. She had a little baby girl. Mm-hmm. And, you know, <laughs> all of his needs to be distracted, to mm-hmm. give himself over entirely Hmm. to another being other than himself so that he didn't have to feel his own demons she she became that one and that's Hmm. why he had been crying that's why he had been upset and Hmm. removed from me because he didn't love me anymore and he knew this all this happened around you know like june Mm-hmm. That was midsummer. I took that glass of wine after a year and a half. Yeah, yeah. But it had been leading up the the month before. It just been a month or so since May that he met this woman, got involved with her. Do you think that if you hadn't stopped for that year and a half, that might not have occurred? I've never dwelt on that because I don't know the answer, and right. I prefer. My sobriety. Yeah, I get that. That is so much more to me than anything. It's everything. So you go through this after 15 years of marriage. Did you get divorced at that point? Uh, Oh, yeah, we got that in motion. But for the immediate two weeks afterwards, I didn't eat, I didn't sleep, I cried. And then off I went. Now, 
And the meeting I had gone to, I thought that was no good. Right. I had a little where to find. And I, I looked through and they had a, a meeting on a Sunday. Uh-huh. And it said, joys of recovery. And I thought, <laughs> that's what I want. The joys of recovery. Because wow. that sounds, you know, the American way. Oh, yeah, yeah, let's, yeah, let's sing and shout. Yeah. English meetings are not quite so hectic and wild. They're pretty reserved, I've noticed. Pretty reserved. But it was good. Huh. And I met good people there. And I did 1990. That's all I had. So you're following Mark's advice, weren't you? Yeah. I didn't need to work. I was blessed with that. Uh-huh. Uh, my ex-husband made sure I had some money and I had money in an account. Uh-huh. So I didn't need to work. And for two years, I just went, I went to the 1990. If I found a meeting that I didn't really like, I'd go back the next week just in case. Yeah. But I found all the meetings that I really did love. In Al-Anon, they have a thing that says, we suggest that you give us six meetings because the first meeting you go to might not be exactly what you were looking for. The second meeting might be a little bit more towards your liking. By the time you've gone to four to six meetings, you can judge whether or not you want to be here long term. Have you ever found that to be the case? I gave them two. And (laughs) if they still served me in a big mug of tea with sugar in it. Forget it. I don't take sugar in my tea, babe. (laughs) That's enough of a reason to stop going to a meeting right there. Yeah, I don't drink sugar, baby. Oh, you need the sugar. No, I don't, babe, so I don't drink sugar in my tea. Another (laughs) addiction. So you were going to these meetings. You were doing 90 and 90 for the first two years. You were pretty much a daily meeting goer during that time. Yeah, there's so many meetings in London. I mean, it's a smorgasbord. Did you get yourself a sponsor during that time? Well, do you know, it's another thing I learned was hand over God's will. Uh-huh. I got that very strongly from Mark. And it was, huh. thy will be done. Will so be every done. morning I would pray for mm-hmm. a sponsor. Yeah. And I said, if it's thy will, poof, that will do And I would ask, I did ask, Mm -hmm. and I didn't know who to ask. I had no judgment. And, you know, six ladies said no. Huh. Yeah, Uh before one said yes. And she was lovely. She was Finnish. And then she went back to Finland. So I had to ask again. Now, Now I had 18 months in sobriety, so I was pretty cool. And there was this wonderful, wonderful woman. Uh-huh. Oh, she always sat at the front in the meeting. She had uh-huh. the sparkle in her eyes, and I adored her. She was in her 60s, mm-hmm. and I just, I, she, was, she had such a wondrous take on life of mm-hmm. joy, laughter, and her story was like, whoa, oh, you yeah. don't say. She, she had the nuns, you know, come and look after her. And <laughs> she, while she was seeing, like, things crawling up the wall. And I get it. Beautiful Irish girl, an author. She was uh-huh. wonderful. Uh-huh. And I went to this wonderful meeting uh-huh. in Chelsea. Uh-huh. Huge meeting. And it was really, it had such good energy. Uh-huh. Almost American. Had a yeah. lot of American people there. That's cool. And I, I, after the meeting, I thought, I, I, well, I'm going to ask her, as God's will, you know, she's going to bat me away, but I'm going to ask. And she said yes. 
Oh, nice. And she was my sponsor for the next Brilliant. 22 years. Okay, so God's will for you to have this woman as your sponsor. Did she get you started on the steps right away? I'd already started, but she said, no, we're going to do it this way. Oh. And we did it basically the big book way mm -hmm. and kept it simple. I'd already been been writing for my other sponsor, you know, my life story for mm -hmm. my step four. Mm -hmm, I'd sure. already written 10,000 words. Uh-huh. And she was like, no, don't want that. I want <laughs> three, I want the three columns. And you and I, when you're finished writing it, we are going to sit down in one session and that's it. My goodness. And so that's what we did. How did you feel about that? Were you resistant to that after all the work you had done? No. So this woman really was... Uh, a game changer for you, wasn't she? She was. There was a point in when I was doing the, the fourth step, writing, uh -huh. that I couldn't write anymore. Because what I did with that 10,000 words is that, you know, I continued with it to a certain extent. And then from it, I found all the how I felt about things, mm -hmm. you know, what the actual resentments were and how I felt about things. But there was a mm -hmm. part of it. I was, I was sitting up on my computer uh -huh. and I was, I was writing out a certain section of my life and it was breaking my heart and I had to call my sponsor and I had to say, she said, it's all right, darling. I've got a prayer for you. Hmm. And she gave me this prayer mm -hmm. and she said, take time off for two weeks. No, don't uh -huh. even think about it. Pray each uh -huh. and every day with this prayer. And I went back to it. Bam. Two weeks later, all was good. Do you remember that prayer? No, it's, it's tucked away somewhere in the chest. Uh-huh. That got all packed away when I moved house from the big house to my little cottage here. But it's like, Lord, Lord, come with me into the dark places, hold my hand. And it was, it was a beautiful prayer. Yeah. Every time I called her, anything that was bothering me, she had the wisdom, she had the answer, a few simple words, and huh. everything cleared up. And huh. it's just the act of sharing something with somebody yeah. you know you can trust. It lifts it from you. So you sat down with her. You have this fourth step in hand. You went through your fifth step. What was that experience like, and how did you feel afterwards? She sat and she listened. Now, some of it had been so dark. Uh -huh. When my ex-husband left, um, a friend put me on to a spiritual counsellor uh -huh. who was very good. Mm -hmm. And there were some pages there that I actually shared with him before mm -hmm. my sponsor mm -hmm. because I was so, they were so dark and I was mm -hmm. so ashamed. And he was able to lighten and lift the fear. So I, she heard everything. She heard everything. And she laughed. She didn't fall asleep. And she listened <laughs> Mm -hmm. And we drank tea. Mm -hmm. And then after three, four hours, it was done. Mm. And she said, right, come into the garden, bring bring all, all your pages of your... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we set fire to it. And the next morning, I had to be up very early. 
And um, I was doing um, a video. I was working as an extra. Mm -hmm. And Dino, my Lord, I I walked into this place full of strangers who I was Mm -hmm. going to be working with for the next 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And I felt able to sit down with any of them and just Mm. chat, say hello, and be open. There were no barriers anymore between myself and anybody else on the face of the planet whereas before i was i was too frightened scared or whatever uh, that's a terrific transformation from doing the fourth step to doing the fifth step and then the next morning you're okay with the world and willing to do what god would have you do that next day huh yeah and the thing is i yeah. mean that is an incredible revelation uh-huh you know for the first time not to feel a wall between yourself and the rest of the world. Yeah. To have yeah. an honest, open aspect. Now, yeah. but you have to work on that each and every day still. That veil lifted is is a real challenge. Let me ask you something. I, I, I've known a lot of people in the past who did their fourth steps and then their fifth steps and then they burned them. And then I've heard other people say that it was a good thing they kept their fourth step because when it came time for them to do their eighth and ninth step, they had a frame of reference for that. What was your experience with, with doing the eighth and ninth step and with regard to having burned your fourth step? Well, you see... Howard, I still had it on my computer. <laughs> it was it was a ritual. It was a okay. ritual. Okay, okay. So you got all this done, and what was it like for you when you got to your eighth step and your ninth step? What was that experience like? I did seek out people uh-huh. who um, I had harmed, mm-hmm. and it was like beating heart beating heart mm. for example one of them I was working in fringe theatre was doing the Scottish play and I was a witch of course uh-huh. I was <laughs> and you know drive home afterwards but I, I, I had um, quite a large you know wine uh-huh. and beer and whatever all at home and the old So I drank when I got home, and the trouble was, was that the next day, it was one of these, like, 48-hour, and I was still drinking when I should have been setting off for the Mm theatre. So I called up and said, oh, my mother's had a heart attack, I'm at the hospital. An awful lie. Now, that's one of the things that got me into the rooms, that deep, horrible lie. Uh Uh-huh. I couldn't bear that. I had to meet up with the the two directors and I had to sit them down and and have had to tell them. And do you know they were fine? Hmm. They were sweeties. It was yeah. phew, but to get that off my chest. Yeah. But the majority of other people, um, I had burnt bridges. Yeah. And they didn't they weren't in my life anymore. Huh. But I'd come across them, mm-hmm. and I, I was—I just asked for God's strength yeah. and His wisdom mm-hmm. and God's will. That if I see that, and then just make an apology. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I did that. I remember one chap. Mm-hmm. He was like, "Wah!" As I sort of came up to him, <laughs> "Wah!" And I just said, "No, no, calm down, dear. Calm down. It's all right. Look." Um, I'm an alcoholic, and I was wild and mad. 
I'm not an alcoholic anymore and I just want to apologize for all of my very bad behavior. Uh-huh. And the look of relief and the smile on his face, it's worth it. So as as you were moving forward through the steps, was your sponsor preparing you for the, the service work that you would encounter at the 12th step? And what did that service work look like for you, sponsorship or, or other things uh, that your sponsor had you do? It, and service, I mean, I was so, so joyful when I first got sober. Um, but then I took myself off to the street. That was one of the 1990, and that became my home group. Okay. And uh-huh. the first time they said, we need someone to sweep. I'll sweep the floor. <laughs> and then it was, we need somebody to do the, I'd do the tea. I'd uh-huh. do the cakes. And, and then there's a uh-huh. beautiful ladies meeting that I would go to. Uh-huh. And they needed. Nice. Since I had two years, I'd be a treasurer. I'd do the literature and always it became really important to me. So you were a real service worker. You were a trusted servant of the groups that you were part of. The best thing about service is you interact. It's about interact. I didn't know how to interact in real Uh life. Uh I never had. That's Uh one of the reasons alcohol was my medicine. It enabled Uh me to talk to people. Yeah. You know, from that first time when I went to that meeting in West Hollywood and that guy went, hey, I'm... Who are you? Mm-hmm. And he shoved right. his hand in my face and was mm-hmm. big and beautiful. Um, I knew what service meant. It meant yeah. making welcome people. Yeah, that is so important. Thinking about somebody else before yourself. Mm-hmm. And serving people biscuits and cups of tea is a joy. Especially yeah. you know, me, I, I arrange those biscuits beautifully, <laughs> <Right>. baby. <laughs> yeah. I, it's wonderful. It's a great way to get to know and be known in a group is doing service work. Yes. So in addition to the service work, what were some of the other things that drew you closer to AA and the fellowship itself? The closest to AA was my own conscious contact with my God. And hearing him in people's honesty and their truth blew me away that I wasn't the only person in the world who peed the bed. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Whoa, that gentleman up there in the suit looking so cool, he peed the bed. Yeah! We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery Interviews, I invite you to check out my latest audiobook, Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. This is the word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of the first edition of the Big Book, published in 1939. It's a relaxing yet meaningful and engaging way to listen to the Big Book anytime, anyplace. Have a free listen at Audible, iTunes, or Amazon. While you're there, search for my other audiobook, Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories missing from the 3rd and 4th editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also available from Amazon as a Kindle book or in paperback if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. When did you have that first realization of of that conscious contact with others to God? I mean, what you're talking about is, is other people's experience triggering that conscious contact in God for you. When did that first occur? When I heard a nun at a ladies' meeting, I don't know, 
it was it was just her humility. I think God spoke to me when I was at that very, mm, very first mm-hmm. meeting, which, you know, failed me. I'm sorry, but that's... Mm-hmm. It failed me, but yeah. when I heard that this is not your fault, this is a disease, that was something. I'd yeah, known all yeah. about God growing up. When I was a wee nipper, I was adopted when I was 18 months old uh-huh. because I was born uh-huh. in the 50s. And my mother tried to keep me. She was unmarried though, and there was no help from the state. She was a pariah of society, and she tried oh, to keep me, but... She was mm. working. I was put into a day nursery mm. where I caught scabies. And she she yeah. had to give me up. Yeah, yeah. And I went to two really good, decent, honest, working-class people, Stan and Alice. Oh, good people. And that mm. was God's intervention. Simple, good people. And from a young age, I went to Sunday school. I heard all about Jesus, uh-huh. and and I liked that very much. Uh-huh. Several years later, I'm 11 years old, I'm still in uh-huh. junior school, and sure. there was um, a couple of girls outside our school gates, and just right. over the way yeah. was the mission. And they were handing out pamphlets, sure. uh-huh. and the next Sunday I took myself off to their Sunday school, because I'd stopped going to the other one, uh-huh. and I went... And I joined a Christian Endeavor group, but they're all older than me. And I mm-hmm. asked, I just asked Jesus, come into my heart. Mm-hmm. And I, it was, it was, the, you know, a first real conscious mm-hmm. contact with a higher power. It filled my heart mm-hmm. and all was well, all hmm. was beautiful. It was wonderful. And this was when you were what? You, you said 10, 11 years old at this time, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You had mentioned earlier about 12 being a turning point somewhere along the way for you, huh? Yeah. And I, I did give myself over. Hmm. Unfortunately, I didn't give over my will not one bit because <laughs> this, this sort of adopted child whose mother had suddenly vanished at um, 18 months... And who had never felt a part of anybody or anything. Mm. My first sort of alcoholic drink was stolen money. And my mum and dad would have a nip of sherry, small sherry glass of sherry, every Christmas day Mm -hmm. and every New Year's Day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they'd let me have a tiny nip as well. Mm. And I was looking after a neighbor's cat and she had a, a bottle of sonatogen which is a a sort of a sherry yeah in it's good for you yeah, it's yeah. like it's more of a medicine and and i'd had a few mouthfuls of that and mm. i liked it uh-huh. so i i had stolen money and i went and bought myself a bottle of sherry at 12 you were able to just go buy a bottle of sherry Oh, I, said, oh, I went to an, a local place. Oh, I said, okay. that's for yeah. mum and dad. They sent me to buy. And Angel, when I look innocent, <laughs> I look innocent. And I'm a wonderful liar. And what mum and dad and I used to do as, as I was growing up, on a Saturday, we'd get on the bus and we'd go yeah. shopping somewhere. We'd go either west, east, north, south. We'd go to Portobello Road, Kensington High Street, Shepherd's mm-hmm. Bush sure. Market. Love Shepherd's Bush Market. Hammersmith, King mm-hmm. Street, all local areas. Mm-hmm. Just a bus ride away. 
and it'd be like mm. our afternoon out. But now I was 11 and I was going to my Christian you know, and doing this and I'm, and I'm like, oh, I don't, I, I, I won't, you know, I won't be coming out shopping with you. Oh, that's all mm-hmm. right then, you know. You stay at home, you'll be all right. And I went to a little back room, a mm-hmm. little dining room, and from the cabinet, which mm-hmm. smelt of mothballs, I took out a sherry glass, and I took it upstairs, and I poured out that first mm-hmm. glass of sherry, mm-hmm. all mine. Mm-hmm. I had a whole bottle as well, mm-hmm. and I drank it. Wham! All the fears, all the alienation, it, it, mm. they've all gone away. Yeah! Further along, I was like two miles away on Kew Bridge, and I had not a clue how oh I had got there. And then I got home again. That was a mm-hmm. bit befuddled. Um, there was the empty bottle of sherry on the floor in my bedroom. My goodness. And that was my first blackout. My first real drink was to blackout. How did you feel after that happened? Were you anxious to do it again, or were you scared? What was the feeling at that point? I felt quite sick, but it didn't stop me. At the same time, I didn't go seeking it. Mm. Mm -hmm. But many incidences followed where I Mm. would drink to blackout. And the funny thing was that on my 13th birthday, I was going to a disco, and my parents knew all about it. It mm-hmm. was up in London, and I was mm-hmm. going with people. Mm-hmm. I lied. Mm-hmm. I was going alone. And when I got home, mm-hmm. I hadn't drank that night. It hadn't been that sort mm-hmm. of thing. I got home, and they saw sticking out of my bag a packet of cigarettes. Oh, no. <gasps> All hell broke loose <laughs> that I was smoking. Oh, my Lord. Now, I had come home... Already at this time, once or twice, paralytically uh-huh. drunk and been sick right. all over my bed. You know, they never said a word. They never said anything about that? No. But the cigarettes, <laughs> boom. I didn't think they understood. They didn't drink. And their family had drank. Did they attribute the, the paralytic state and the mess in the bed to something else? Or did they just not understand that's what happened when someone drank the way you did? They didn't understand that. Huh. That's interesting. So you got taken to task for the cigarettes. Yes. What was the outcome of that? What was it, What were your consequences? Well, I'd met a very beautiful girl who's two years older than me. And she became my absolute demon. In every way. Your demon. Hmm. She taught me the dark side of life. Hmm. Hmm. And when I was 13, we ran away from home together. My parents didn't have a bank account. This is 1970. They kept all the the money for the gas man, the money money Uh for the electricity, the rent money, and all of that in the wardrobe, locked up in glass jars. I smashed open the wardrobe. I took most of that money. And you took off? And I took off with this, this girl. How long were you gone? Just a week. We went all the way from Chiswick, eight miles huh. into Soho. Because, you know, this is at the fag end of, yeah, you know, the yeah, hippies, yeah. man. We also had the skinhead revolution, that the first skinhead, not two-tone, not madness, not all that music. This was ten years before. And so I was a skinhead and I was a hippie man. 
This is at 13 years old. Because I was a total dichotomy. I wanted everything. I, I wanted the good, the bad, the light, the dark. I wanted to taste everything. And it was all this big search, big search for love, for affirmation. And I loved dressing up. At 13. Yeah. So we ran away from home, and my parents took me back after that. But, you know, it didn't get better. I was drinking. When I drank, I drank, and I, I, I was bunking off school. And when I was 14, they, mm. they gave up on me. I ran away again. This time, I, I ended up staying with a friend, and her mm. mother fostered me. Beautiful woman. So from the time you were 14 until how old did, were you fostered by her? Not for a very long time. And so then I went into a children's home. How long were you there? 18 months. 18 months. So you're talking about being almost, uh, what, 16 or so when you get out of the children's home? Yeah, I, I actually left to get married. I was engaged to be married to a very lovely man. Boy. At 16? At 15. I was going to get married on my 16th birthday. <laughs> so what happened? I got cold feet and ran away to Edinburgh with um, a, a gay boy. He's the same age as me, and he had a sugar daddy who rented a beautiful flat for us. So you were kind of on your own by this time, huh? Oh, yeah. I, I was on the streets from 15, really. I had, I had bed sets and I had flats, but... Quite a lot of the time I was just staying with people. Not, not a lot, a little bit, a little bit. I could get my life together and really build a good life. Right. I'd have a uh -huh. flat, a bed sit. Right. I'd have a job. I would do well. But I had hmm. this cycle, and that was hmm. 18 months. The 18 months here, 18 months there. Yeah, it's a pattern, isn't it? Um, after 18 months, I would blow everything, lose everything huh. through alcohol. I had my first rock bottom when I was 15. That was, you know, before my 16th birthday. What happened? I I'd got my first job leaving school. Yeah. And it's the first time I'd earned money. Mm. And I very, very quickly learned how to steal without being found out. And with the money I stole and the money that I earned... And the beautiful clothes I was able to buy and the mm -hmm, wonderful mm -hmm. makeup and oh it was so lovely. I loved I would have loved mm -hmm. to have carried on there. But with that money I could buy alcohol mm -hmm. as well. Now mm -hmm. I could really drink. So all this is happening in your middle teens and then you mentioned that you got you got married at twenty three. So let's say in the next from the time you didn't get married when you were 16, till 23. What what did that period of uh, look like in your life? I suppose we could center mm -hmm. around 76. I'd taken myself back to college because yeah. I'd left school at 15. Uh -huh. But uh, academically, yes. I was very uh -huh. good, you know, because I'd uh -huh. been expelled from one school. But the second school that I went to, the only school that, that would take me, which was strictly uh -huh. secondary modern. But the teachers were wonderful. They had to work their asses uh -huh. off uh -huh. to get through to as a lot of dysfunctional yeah. kids there. And English was a yeah. second language to the majority of them. You know, but it was a mm -hmm. rocking school, mm -hmm. and I mm -hmm. loved it. Right. 
Um, I left school and all my teachers said, don't. We'll write you really good reports as like CVs yeah. for you. But I, I yeah. thought, I've got to go back. And I went to college, which was like to get O-levels and go on. And then I was going to go to art uh-huh. school. Yeah. And I was, I was going to huh. that. And I was still going to parties and going out. I didn't have any huge alcoholic outages at that time because I was, I was very really keen on my studies but I went to one party and I met this lovely uh-huh. chap and I thought no I don't fancy uh-huh. him but I like this man he makes me laugh and we got on so very uh-huh. well so you know we uh-huh. exchanged telephone numbers and got in touch with each other and he said oh look my best friend he's playing now this is March 1976 uh-huh. and the band was the Sex Pistols hmm. he took me along huh. this is about the third gig they'd ever done totally blew uh-huh. me away the energy the anger uh-huh. it totally spoke to uh-huh. exactly how I felt. I'd already done a lot of self-harming, mm. and this had been from 13 mm-hmm. years old. Mm-hmm. And that anger mm. and that mm. fury, I'd been, I tried being violent with other people. Yeah, I'm going to beat you up. Don't mm-hmm. like it. Sure. Don't like hurting other people. Yeah. But I found that I could really hurt myself right. with anything, broken, whatever. And broken glass, it doesn't oh. matter, but it, it let the rage, the fear, everything just drain away. And I would be in a kind of a limbo mm. for one or two weeks afterward. Because mm. they, they were always quite mm-hmm. serious. This, watching this band, this music perform, the, it was incredible. And I promptly broke a glass and... But it didn't end well. The cutting that I had done, I had oh. to be drunk to do it. Like my f- my first devil one when I was fifteen, it's the endorphins, and uh-huh. you know I continued to do it from well, say fifteen right up until thirty five before I got sober. The summer of seventy six. Uh-huh. At that time, I was working to pay my way through college because I was back at college. Um, I was working in a wonderful pub in, in North London, yeah. near where I lived. And we had the best people come in. I'm 18. I'm a wonderful barmaid. Because I will remember what you're drinking, my dear, and have it ready for you the uh-huh. moment you walk through that door. And, you know, with the background, I didn't drink when I did that job until huh. the end. But I've been there for like a year. And that's getting, you know, that's paying my getting through college. And very rarely did I drink to blackout at that time. Kind of good time. I loved my studies. I loved my studies. But it was always right there then, wasn't it? You weren't drinking while you were bartending and hanging out with these folks. Not when I was at college. Right. You know, but I was known as Mad Jane throughout that community for that time. All this is going on within a period of how many years? Two years, two years. We'd been arrested one night, and this is the last night that I worked. It's uh-huh. a, a drought that summer, right. and basically there was no draft right. beer. There was only bottled beer, and and draft beer was suddenly back. It was back, and 
we mm-hmm. all got wasted. Uh-huh. I had them at the bar. They were giving me 50p's and I was giving them loads of drink. We all got really drunk. And mm-hmm. we got so mm-hmm. drunk that we decided... We used to walk home and uh, we decided that we would steal a truck. Not one of us could drive. <laughs> that the truck was actually up. It had no wheels on it. We didn't notice... Oh, we're just sitting, you know, go away. And and he smashed up the telephone box instead. Uh-huh. And so then the police came and they took me, all of us away. And right. I said, uh-huh. don't put me in a cell. Yeah, yeah. I said, don't, I said, don't put mm-hmm. me in a cell. They put me in a cell. And yeah. I was very drunk. And you know the thick wired glass, hmm. like frosted glass, and it's got wired. I smashed it. I was able mm. to smash it with my fist. And I cut a huge thing on my arm. And I said, you better let me out because I'm bleeding. And right. they, they let mm-hmm. me out. They took me to hospital where I was stitched up and then wrapped up. Mm-hmm. And, and they took me back to the police station. They put me back in the cell. So I just simply ripped off all the bandages and ripped off out all the stitches and said, don't do that again. And then uh, back to the hospital. Yeah. And then they, they wouldn't put me back in the cell after that. <laughs> I, was, I was quite wild. I remember all of that uh-huh. night I didn't black out. What happened was, though, and I didn't know till years later, that we had a few days uh-huh. before our court right. appearance. And I'm very, you know, mm-hmm, I had this love, mm-hmm. uh, lovely skirt that I'd made. It's like a 50s skirt, beautiful fabric, and a little white blouse. And along I go, and we all go to... Uh-huh. They, I, and they, I, I had been misled. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, poor! She had been misled. I don't know. I don't remember that court case at all. But no, I had been misled, and they were the bad boys. So the cutting that I had done. Okay, that's an addiction, isn't it? The 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 cutting, isn't it? Oh God, yes! It's the endorphins mm. and everything that it gives you, and it is. You know, I continued to do it. It was part of my addiction. And it was always always done when I was drinking. So you were cutting, you were hanging out with these people. Uh, when you were 23, you got married, and then that marriage lasted for 15 years. So after 15 years of marriage, you had stopped cutting. Was that at the same time that you stopped drinking? The two went together. They really did. Do you think you could have stopped cutting if you hadn't come into AA? I'd stopped. I had stopped, I think, about a year or so before. You had stopped, but I mean, do you think you could have stayed stopped if you hadn't gone into AA and you'd, and you'd kept on drinking? Oh, no, I had started cutting my neck and other parts. So I probably, that probably would have been how I died. Oh, dear. Okay. Alcohol and, and a sharp object and I... Yeah. yeah, I mean there were there were great right. intermissions in between. It yeah. wasn't a continual thing. Yeah, but it was a huge build up yeah. of all everything, and to let it all go, it would flow out of me with the blood. It really was a release. It was wonderful. It was never oh, suicidal. It was never yeah. that. It was a fury. Yeah. So between the time that you got sober twenty six years ago. And let's say the more recent history, in the 26 years that you've been sober, have you had the opportunity to 
interact with and uh, be of service to other women who have been cutters? I've offered that help. Yeah. What have you found along the way? I've offered that help where it's been there. Um, it's, it's never yeah. been taken up. And I, I wouldn't know why. Huh. Yeah, why do you I don't know. Because I've got a funny haircut. I don't know. Yeah. I still retain yeah. a lot of what I learnt in, in punk, and it's an individuality. And I, I, I shave, uh-huh. you know, half my head simply because it works for me. I like it. Yeah, I get that. And I've offered help to ladies who cut or, or anyone. Yeah. You know, it's not a sex thing. It's not a gender thing. But it's, it's never been taken up. That's really interesting. When you share, do you talk about it very much? I mean, do people know it's an integral part of your story? Not often. I will refer to it. Huh. If I'm doing mm-hmm. a chair, I, I won't go into huge detail. But it started with, you know, that that first girl. Um, we'll call her Tina. Hmm. That's her name. <clears throat> who I ran away with. Sure. And she had just described to me how one that she was so sad and it was raining and she was leaning on her bedroom window looking out at the the tree as the rain was falling and she'd cut and the blood had dripped and she made it sound beautiful and it All was right. later when yeah. I had had a few drinks that very soon afterwards that you know and I was on the run at this time you know I was away without leave on the on the streets of Arlscourt yeah. safe in the gay community because you know, I'd already been raped. I'd lost my virginity to that. Yeah. And that was at her hand. She had actually held my hand while it happened hmm. when I was 13. Yeah. And so I, 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 I sort of, I preferred a gay community because it was safe. They weren't, yeah, going, I get they weren't that. going to touch yeah. me. I was safe. So the drinking and the cutting went hand in hand. Since you've been in AA, have, have you been able to come to terms with what the cutting was all about in your life? Oh yeah, I, I I absolutely understand it. It was I had to release the anger. Another way I released uh-huh. myself, as it were, I was true yeah. to myself, was music. And that's why I, I taught myself to uh-huh. play bass over eighteen months, You're and being then in a band. that actually led to, you know, uh-huh. being in a band with boys. Right. But they didn't want me to write songs. And and thought, well, fuck you. And so I formed an all-girl band, and we wrote our own songs. We all wrote songs. We all, you know, and we toured America twice. Houston, I've been there, played there. Did a radio show in Houston as well. I can't remember what it was called. Yes. In the past several years, have you been involved with music again? No. You've been sober a long time now. What have been some of the enriching things that have happened for you in the last five years? Just living life sober. Yeah. And working, keeping uh-huh. alive. Right. I don't have a lot of money, you know, but I do have uh-huh. my own little cottage. It's all yeah. paid for. That's such a blessing. And just living life. Huh. And one day at a time being sober. Getting through the pandemic. Thank God for Zoom. Oh, my Lord, thank God for Zoom. Are you going back to live meetings yet? Not yet, no. I've worked all throughout. I've had to go out and work because I'm front line. I'm, I sell fruits and vegetables. I, I'm a grocer. 
but you know f- you know f- that's one of the sort of occupations that you you have to work yeah how do you, you feel know? about going back to live meetings at this point oh i look forward to it yeah but i still yeah. love my zoom yeah i'll bet you do well that was one of the reasons why I was so glad when you said you would do this because I knew that we could do it through Zoom. I knew that you and a number of other people I love over there have been cooped up for a really long time. And I'm, I'm really glad that going to some of the meetings I've gone to in Great Britain has really enriched the quality of my program over the last year. It has for me. All the different... Yeah. And all, it's wonderful. I love yeah. like zooming into America, as it were. Yeah. It's beautiful, isn't it? It really is. I love it. You know, one of the things I like to ask kind of towards the end of these interviews, it's more of a contemplative question, but if the Jane of today, knowing what you know today, could go back and talk to that 13 or 15 or 16-year-old Jane... And you could pull her aside to give her a little bit of advice, knowing what you know now. What would you tell her? You will be loved. Hmm. You will be loved. But live your life. I can't change that because it's made me who I am today. I can't deny her. Because despite all of the madness and insanity, I was able to bring forth my dreams As a Mm -hmm. musician, I went to art school when I was 50. Mm -hmm. That was Mm -hmm. through AA and, Mm -hmm. you know, being sensible, whatever. Yeah, of course. Um, I have lived, I've acted on stage. I I lived my dreams. None of them Mm. were successful in the sense that I could make a living from them in the Mm -hmm. end. Right. And I have, yeah, I would say to her, you will be loved. Yeah. And... Yeah. I can't tell her anything else because yeah. through DNA, having that tested, I found that, you know, my mother committed suicide. I found this out 11 oh, years sorry, ago. AA got me oh. through it. After she gave wow. me up, she went on to have another child. Uh-huh. And, uh-huh. and when he was 17, he had a motorbike accident and died. Oh, dear. And a year later, she put a plastic bag over her head and tied it up with a silk scarf oh. and died. And I only found this out through Facebook. I just put out yeah. a very cryptic sure. thing on a uh, genealogy yeah. page. And this woman, obviously adept at finding, because I'd been searching for my mother yeah. Yeah. for uh-huh. all of my married life. All the time yeah. that I was together with my husband, he helped me search we couldn't find anything, huh. but I found out all about her. I got the coroner's report. She'd been a mm. manic depressive. She'd mm. been in Guernsey during the occupation of the Nazis. That's how she mm-hmm. grew up. Yeah. And she had tuberculosis, which can lead to like chronic depression. Sure. Uh-huh. And, and, I th- and I realized then... I did a chair a few weeks after I found this out, mm-hmm. and it hit me. This woman who I had obsessed about, that was also a part of my pain, sure. you uh-huh. know, the yearning to know her, um, was that I wasn't my mother. Yeah. And four years ago, I had my DNA tested, and it all came back. Basically, you can sign up and say, yes, people can get in contact with me if they're like a a first cousin or Uh whatever. They can Uh send an email. It's up to me if I reply. And I'm getting first cousin 
sort of testings other people's DNAs. And, wow. And it, and it ended up, I've got a sister, a sibling. I was my father's wild oats in the 50s. Uh-huh. He's an Irish, okay. an Irish uh-huh. man from Donegal. Yeah, He'd come sure. over to London <laughs> and, you know, there he was. He sowed me, as it were. I don't know what happened between them, whether it's a love affair or water. Mm-hmm. I know nothing. But then he went back to Ireland, then to New York to join his four brothers, and they had a bar in New York, and hmm. he, he got married, and he's got um, his eldest daughter, it's my little sister, and I've got two little brothers in New York. She's in Washington, they're in New York. Have you so, met them yet? Oh, yeah, on Zoom. And, you really? Know, yeah, face, face lots of emails. And I was going to go and uh-huh. stay with them, but then we got covid Oh. Yeah, sure. Right. So I've, you know, I saved all, all of my money. And when this is all settled down, mm-hmm. yeah, then I will go and meet my family, real family. What an incredible story. This is what sobriety has brought into your life, hasn't it? Yeah. So that's why I that's go back to that 13 year old and I say, you will be loved. I can't yeah. tell her anything else. She's got to find out yeah. for herself. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to wrap this up with that sentiment and your your heartfelt gratitude that I can sense for AA and your involvement over the last 26 years. You're really a, a beautiful person. I love you. And Oh, Lord, yes. You've just done a wonderful job of laying out uh, just an incredibly extraordinary life that has led you to being right where you are. And I'm looking <laughs> at you right now on the screen and you look very relaxed and and satisfied. And I, you know, that's the best thing you can say about a person who's in AA is they're relaxed and satisfied and comfortable and comfortable in their own skin. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. But I can look back on all of my life, Mm -hmm. see that it's remarkable. Mm -hmm. Yes, dark and wild, violent, nasty, but also AA has brought me closer and has taught me how to live with humans Mm. And it's enriched my spiritual life where Mm. I live with God. That's such a beautiful way to end here, Jane. Thank you so much for doing this. This has been marvelous. And I really appreciate your taking the time to sit down with me and share your life. Again, many thanks for doing this. Thank you. I shut up now. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks again to Jane P. for sharing her story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? Think of it as a little AA service that spreads the word about this rich and meaningful listening experience. It's yet another helping hand we can all extend to alcoholics everywhere. Listen to all the interviews of this podcast by following us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show to date. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. This podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.